I joyfully often mention that I've heard that all the Buddhas, each Buddha and all the Buddhas, are sitting upright in the midst of fierce flames, turning the wheel of the Dharma, turning the the wheel of the teaching. I feel another way to say this would be that that Buddha Buddhas are sitting in the midst of all living beings and uh, sitting in the middle of the flames of their suffering and therein they turn the wheel of the Dharma. So I've heard that and, and I I say it over and over. I, I think it. I remember it. I imagine it. I imagine that's where Buddhas are living. And I also imagine, which brings a smile to my face, I imagine that that's where we live too. That we, each of us, live in the center of all living beings. The Buddhas are not on the periphery of all living beings. They're at the center. And we are not on the periphery of all living beings. We are at the center, each of us. So we are in the same place as the Buddhas. That's what I, that's how I think. I think I'm in the same place as all Buddhas. And all Buddhas are in the same place as me. And all Buddhas are in the same place as each of you. And you are in the same place as all Buddhas. This statement from a physicist, astrophysicist, pops into my mind, which is, all the different places in the universe were originally in the same place. Further, I imagine that the Buddhas, sitting at the center of all beings, sitting in the middle of fierce flames, turning the wheel of dharma. Uh, The way they turn the wheel of dharma includes, or is inseparable from them listening to all the cries of all the beings around them. So they're sitting there in the middle of all these beings, listening to them all. Or you could also say they are observing all beings with eyes of compassion from their excellent seat, observing each and every living being. And then when they meet a being, they teach for that being. I imagine Buddhas, I imagine Buddha as being like that. Buddha is sitting in the middle of all beings, meeting each one, and teaching that in response to that one. Which brings up another Zen story, which is a monk asked the 
Master Yun Man, which means, I think, Cloud Gate, Chinese Buddhist monk. A monk said, what are, what are, what's the activity or what's the business of the Buddha's whole lifetime? And Yun Man said, uh, actually, the Chinese characters are meeting, each, teach. Three characters. Meet, each, teach. And uh, that sometimes is translated as the Buddha's activity is an appropriate response. Responding appropriately to the each, each, in each meeting, responding appropriately. But it's, the characters are literally meet or confront, and the character for one, it also means each, and teach. That's what the Buddha does the whole lifetime of Buddha, sitting in the center of all beings, meeting each, teach. And meeting includes, uh, you know, look at them, listen to them. Uh, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, smell them. Usually we don't lick people, <laughs> like dogs. <laughs> then, you know, occasionally that might be necessary, but and sometimes touch. Look, listen. <laughs> and touch. And, and uh, I, uh, now these days, uh, some teachers touch people, they hug people, and stuff like that. Um, and I, I was wondering, years ago I was wondering, did the Buddha ever touch anybody? Most of the scriptures you don't hear. The Buddha went around and touched everybody, hugged all the monks and nuns. So I, <laughs> I sent out some scouts to see if they could find any examples of the Buddha touching somebody. And they found some examples. Like one example was, Buddha was walking along with his attendant, Ananda, and they saw on the road one of the members of the Sangha, or, you know, lying kind of on the ground, uh, and really, you know, sick and, uh, you know, uncared for, you know, like maybe even unable to stand or sit up, looking really sick and uncared for and dirty and so on. So then the Buddha and Ananda touched this, I think it was a monk, touched this person and lifted them up, put them up on a bed and cleaned them and took care of them. And then he, and he maybe in maybe the next talk he gave to the assembly, he said, he told them about this incident where he touched this monk and lifted him up and cleaned him and so on. He said, uh, when you see somebody like that, do like that. Take care of them. And if you take care of them, that will be like taking care of me. So take care of, I take care of the Sangha. You take care of the Sangha. You take care of the Sangha. You take care of me. I guess he hadn't told them that before. They didn't. It didn't naturally arise. Oh, if, if one of us is lying on the ground, we should touch him, pick him up, or pick her up, 
And uh, but then, then he told. So then, now we know that that's not against the rules. So Buddha does sometimes touch people in an appropriate way at an appropriate time, according to the call. They respond. Hearing, seeing, touching, smelling, tasting, and thinking. All day long, they're responding. And that, that call and response, that inquiry and response, come up together. Inquiry and response come up together. There's no call before the response. There's no floating call. Help, help, help. As soon as, help, help, that is the Buddha's life. It's not, it's not, it's calling and response. It's like, yeah, it's question and answer simultaneously. That's the Buddha's life. And the Buddha does that in the middle of everybody and everything. And the Buddha has been trained to be able to sit there, moment after moment, receiving the requests and responding. And also making requests and being responded to. When you see someone like this, please take care of them. Yes, Buddha. Will you please take care of everyone? Yes. Yes, we will. Some of you are just arrived today, right? And uh, so I'm, this is, I'm kind of giving you a review that we've been talking about this, listening to all these cries that are surrounding us. Maybe, that's, maybe some of you feel that way, that you're sitting at the center of all the cries of the world. I think that's a good meditation, that, you, that we are. And we can listen. And again, sometimes we hear a cry, like uh, somebody told me a cry. What was it? Oh, something came up in this person's mind, yeah, that they didn't think was helpful. So something came, and there was a thought, that's not helpful and they didn't practice compassion towards this thing, and then they didn't practice compassion towards, that's not helpful. And then they thought, I wish that thing would go away. And they didn't practice compassion towards, I wish that thing would go away. But we're trying to learn how, when something comes that looks like this, like this, however it looks, no matter how it looks, like if it looks like this, or like this, or like that, however it looks, if it looks like this, or like this, However it looks, no matter what it is that comes, no matter what comes, we welcome it. This is the way of Buddha. Whatever comes, welcome it. No matter how it looks, welcome it. And in fact, in reality, whatever comes, you do welcome. That's your original nature, is no matter what comes, your original nature welcomes it. However, I've noticed that we sometimes miss that. <laughs> so something comes, we welcome it, and then a thought 
because we missed the we, we missed the meeting of our original pure nature, because we missed the meeting, then we think that this person or this thought is not helpful, etc. Ad infinitum. We miss the meeting, and then in the missing, we think, no, thank you. We welcome it. We miss the welcoming. We say, I don't want it. Well, the I don't want it is the next thing that's coming. And it's saying, would you please welcome? I don't want it. Would you please welcome that? Welcome, I don't want it. Or welcome, uh, maybe I should say, welcome, it's not helpful. And then if you, and, and then, and, if, and again, in reality, when it's not helpful comes, it's welcomed. When, when this is no good, when this is an enemy, when those thoughts arise, they're welcomed. They're never not welcomed, basically. If they weren't welcomed, they wouldn't exist. They, there would be no experience. But somebody's there welcoming them. And that somebody that's welcoming them is called our original nature. And these teachings are for our original nature so that it can come alive, these bodhisattva teachings. So again, the Buddhas, whatever comes, they welcome, and we're that way too. However, the Buddhas know, are, are, are fully that way, so they don't miss it. We sometimes miss that we welcome whatever comes in our life. Illness is welcomed. Health is welcomed. Youth is welcomed. Old age is welcomed. Shrinking is welcoming, welcomed. Inflation is welcome. Everything is welcome, moment by moment. And that welcoming is meeting it and teaching. That's what the Buddha does. Buddha meets it and says, you are welcome in the Buddha seat. Another kind of teaching that pops up in my mind is another ancestor, unidentified ancestor, old-time Buddha. I think maybe he asked the question, but I'm not sure. Maybe a monk asked him a question. Maybe it was a he, maybe it was a she, I don't know. Just says old-time Buddha. So somebody says, when things come at you from all directions, how do you practice? And the response is, give up trying to control, which is similar, welcoming. When you welcome something, you're not trying to control it. You're welcoming it. You're letting it be. Give up trying to control. It doesn't say, well, I don't know what it says. I, I should probably find the Chinese original. But I think the translation I like is give up trying to control. Not give up controlling, because we're not controlling. When things are coming at us from all directions, we're not controlling that. We're not like conjuring up it all coming to us. The universe generously comes at us from all directions all day long. When it's like that, somebody recommends we give up trying to control. And then it goes on to say everything that's coming is the teaching. 
when everything that's coming is the teaching, then everything, then our responses are the teaching. And then we, together with everything that's coming from all directions, practice together, practice the teaching together. And originally, our original situation is that's what we're actually up to all day long, just like that's what the Buddha's up all day long. But the Buddhas have realized that. They really understand it. And we're learning that. We have the opportunity to learn this. And the Buddhas who realize this way of being in the center of all things, which is welcoming and realizing the truth, they, their, their, their source is the bodhisattva precepts, which are for making Buddhas but also they are to educate and and guide bodhisattvas in the path to Buddhahood. And so the Buddhas arise from these teachings and then give us these teachings. And and I, just to, to make it a little, not exactly easier, but to support me, would you remind me to talk to you about giving these teachings in case I don't get into that sufficiently? Would you remind me about the, the tradition of giving these precepts? Thank you. I wanted to mention two things that, in honor of Reverend Shogun. This is Reverend Shogun Honoring Day. Thanks for coming. So uh, he, wrote, he raised two things in past talks. One of them was, well, I'll start with, I, I was saying that, uh, that everything is calling for compassion, even happiness. And I, can, I, I understand that someone might think, well, is happiness calling for compassion? I can understand that. And Reverend Shogun asked, is happiness calling for compassion? It kind of surprised you, right? That statement. Thank you for being surprised by me saying that. And later I thought, yeah, I, I think that's the case. I think happiness is also calling for compassion. I thought of some examples. And the first example that popped in my mind was, look, mom, no hands. <laughs> you know that one? You know that one? Do you know that one? What's your name? Alexandra. Alexandra. Well, there's an expression, a common expression, which is, look, mom, no hands. Back in the days when people rode bicycles, (laughs) boys and girls would learn how to ride. And then at some point in their riding practice, they would learn how to ride with not holding onto the handlebars. And then at that time, which is sometimes in the street in front of your house, you would say, your mom who's watching you like, oh. (laughs) We'd say, look, mom, no hands. The one who's saying that is full of joy. They're happy. They're also being, you know, they're, they're amazed, too, that this is happening. And they're joyful. And they want their mom to look at them. And they want their mom to look, you know, really look at them and with compassion. And it, it, you know, like, would you please do me the favor of uh, putting aside all your other work and look at me? 
And would you please appreciate me? Compassion is also is to appreciate people even if they're on the verge of death from illness or driving without, with no hands. Another th one time I was watching this boy. He was out in the water. He w I think he was standing on his inner tube. Can you imagine that? It's, it's, it's difficult, but you can actually sometimes stand on the inner tube, especially if you're just the right size. So he's standing on the inner tube, and he says, Mom, look at me. He's happy. He wants his mom's attention. He wants his mom's generosity. He wants his mom's vigilance. He wants his mom's compassion. And he's joyful. And she says to him, my eyes are on you. <laughs> we want our happiness observed by loving bodhisattvas. We want our misery observed. Even if we don't know it, I'm saying we do. Like when the kid calls out, hey, mom, look at me. They may not know. They may not understand. You have just asked your mother to look at you. They may not understand that, that they made a request and that their mother responded. But in fact, they're enacting it. And we can see it even if they can't. Just like all day long, we're doing that. And Buddha can see it even if we can't. Yeah, so no matter what we're going through, we're welcoming everything. And no matter what we're going through, we're asking everything to welcome us, which it is. We wouldn't be able to be what we are if everything wasn't supporting us to be what we are. We are, in fact, supported by everything to be the way we are. And then we're not supported by everything to be the way we are. So then we're supported by everything to be another way. So we're constantly changing. We're not supported to be the way we are now and then do that again. No. It's over. <laughs> and everything else that's supporting us has changed, too, because we're supporting them. We're constantly changing, constantly supported, constantly supporting. That's our fundamental nature, which is pure. There's no way to be impure in that dialogue. Dialogos. And logos means word. But it also means meaning. Dialogue means, and dia doesn't mean two, I don't think. I think it means flow. So dialogue is a flow of words, but it's a flow of meaning. We are in a dialogue, which is the flow of words and meaning. And in that dialogue, in that flow, there's no, there's no place to get stuck. There's no. It's, it's pure. And another thing that Reverend Shogun brought up is that uh, there's a scripture called the Brahma Jala Sutta, which is number one in the Diga Nikaya. And this is a translation of the Diga Nikaya. And guess what number one is? You want to guess? The Brahma Jala Sutra. That's number one. So you're not supposed to read, so I'm doing reading for you. <laughs> so number one, the first scripture in this collection of Buddha's teachings is called the Brahmajala Sutra, Brahmajala Sutta in Pali, 
and it's translated as, this translation is uh, the supreme net. Uh, Brahma is a name of the, like the, the boss, the supreme god, the king of, or the queen of the gods, Brahma. And Jala means net. So it's, it's Brahma's net scripture. And that's, this is in Pali. And it, the tableau of this is quite interesting, I think. It's about uh, the Buddha's walking along, and there's a lot of people walking with the Buddha on the earth in India. So maybe that happened, that there was a person that they called Buddha who walked around, and people walked with her. And in this particular case, there was a, a person named uh, Supiya, and he had a student named Brahmadatta. So Supiya, walking along with his disciple, whose name was Brahmadatta. If you want to know anything, ask him. <laughs> he loves the teachings, don't you? Yeah, that's great. Anyway, they were walking along in the herd, in the, in the congregation of the Buddha. And I, I kind of want to say, guess what Supiya was doing? <laughs> Do you know what Supiya was doing? Do you? Yeah, he's walking. I already told you that part. He was disparaging the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. He was, he was like violating the 10th major bodhisattva precept, <laughs> which is do not, I'm no, I should not do not, not disparaging the bodhisattva, that our original nature is not disparaging Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. This guy was right out in the open, you know, right behind the Buddha. <laughs> Not, you know, loud to the whole group, but to his disciple. He was saying, you know, disparaging thing about the teacher, the teaching, and this group. These people are really, these people are really not worthy of my respect, or whatever. This Buddha is like below average. <laughs> what, I don't know. He was disparaging the Buddha, and the Buddha's teaching is also like really hardly worth listening to. And his disciple was protecting and defending the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And they were, they were walking together in the group of the Buddha. Uh, you know, thank you very much. This is a great scripture. It describes our world, where friends, one friend is disparaging the Buddha, the other is praising the Buddha. And they're, they're close. They're, they're living together. They're walking together. And where are they walking? On the earth and in the Buddha assembly. Everybody's 
included in that assembly. Even disparagers are there. And so they're walking along, and the Buddha stops, and everybody else stops, including these two guys. And they camp out for the night at this place, this uh, royal park, and I guess uh, whatever royal being owns the park is lets the Buddha and his herd stay there. And these two people stay there. And then in the morning, uh, some of the monks gathered together in this place called the Round Pavilion. And they, they share their awareness of these two people. One actually disparaging their teacher and, their, and so on, and them. And the other one defending. And, one, and the monks are very happy because they think it's wonderful and marvelous that we have this situation of the teacher disparaging the triple treasure and the student defending it. They think that's just wonderful. I do too. And then the Buddha hears about this and gives the rest of the teaching, which I'll talk to you later about. So I don't know when. <laughs> but the subtitle of this scripture is What the Teaching is Not. So I'm guessing that um, the Buddha will help the one who is disparaging the teaching understand what the teaching is not. The teaching is not something to disparage. Even if you disparage it, that's not what it is. So that's this Brahmajala Sutra. Then there's another one, which is a sutra which gives the bodhisattva precepts, which is very influential in uh, East Asian great vehicle bodhisattva path and very influential in Soto Zen bodhisattva precept practice and transmission. It's very influential. Even if you have problems with this sutra, it's still influential. So if you read this sutra, which I recommend you read it, it's not very long, just so you can see something that in, in you, you might not have known is in the background of this tradition. If you have problems with it, that's OK. But still, we have to deal with problematic influences, if there are any. So I'm not saying you should believe what this sutra says, but I do think it's good for you to be familiar with it, because it's, gonna, it's under, it's, it's, it's not appreciated enough, it, at least in terms of, a, of an influence. It's like, you know, you might have a great-grandfather who was not very skillful, but it's still good to know you have that grandfather, great-grandfather. And, and does that make sense? It's part of what you are. So part of what we are here is influenced or is coming from that sutra. And also, yeah, it's just, uh, I'm, and I'm sharing it with you, because I think part of the sutra is really offers some surprising uh, perspectives, which I shared with you, and maybe I'll share more. But I was not saying I was surprised, impressed, almost stunned by 
are deeply touched by some of the things I heard in this scripture, which I told you. I'll tell you another one. I think I already told you, but I say it again. These, these bodhisattva precepts are the source of the Buddhas. They're the origin of the bodhisattvas. They're the seed of Buddha nature. That's what they are. Not killing is where Buddhas come from. And then not stealing is where they, it's, it's their source. It's the reality of, of our life from which Buddhas come. And then when Buddhas appear in the world, they, they tell people about the precept of not killing. And then the Buddha, and the Buddha said that in this scripture. He says, because of these causes and conditions, these precepts appear in the world. The Buddhas arise, and then the precepts appear. Then we hear the teaching, the precept, not killing, for us to meditate on and remember and understand. And then the Buddha says, so I'm going to, so the, Buddha said, the Buddha recites it. The Buddha says, I'm going to recite these precepts. So then the Buddha does recite them. And the Buddha also says, you should recite them. And then the Buddha says, I'm going to recite them twice a month. So, and I was, again, it, the Buddha's going to spend his time reciting these precepts. He, know, he already knows them. He's, that's what he is. He, he is not killing. He is not stealing. Why does he have to go around saying it? Well, for us. So he's going to say them for us. He, does, he already knows them. He is them. He's realized them. He doesn't need to say them for himself. He says them for us so that we will become Buddha by receiving and practicing these precepts. Which again <laughs> reminds me of a story, similar feeling about, uh, as I, and many of you know this story, I was going on an airplane trip with Suzuki Roshi. We were going to fly to Portland, Oregon. So you know that story, right? But you don't, do you, Alexandra? Do you want to hear it? Once upon a time, I was 48 years younger. <laughs> and Suzuki Roshi asked me to be his attendant on a trip to Portland, Oregon. And I said, thank you, I'd I would be happy to do that. So we got on the airplane, and shortly after getting on the airplane, he said, I'm going to teach you to count people in Japanese. He wanted me to learn Japanese. And he personally gave me Japanese lessons here and there. He also hired a tutor for me. But he also gave me some instruction. So here we are on the airplane, and he's going to teach me how to count people in Japanese. And again, I, I think I was at, the, at that, almost as soon as he started, I thought, Here's this wonderful Zen teacher, and he's going to spend his time teaching me to count people in Japanese, up to 10, which is the same number as the 10 major bodhisattva precepts, which I didn't think of at the time. But anyway, he's basically teaching me how to count to 10. But there's a special way to count. They have different counters in Japanese, like counting flat pieces of paper is my. So ichimai is one piece of paper. And counting bottles or cylindrical objects, hon. So one 
bottle of beer is Ippon. Two bottles of beer is Nihon, right? Three bottles is Sambon, right? Is that right? Hmm? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, counting people is different. One person is Shitori. Two people, Futari. Three people, Sanin. Four people, Shinin. Yonin. Yonin. Five people, Gonin. Six people, Rokunin. Seven people, don't tell me, Shichinin. Eight people, Hachinin. Nine people, Kunin. Ten people, he told me, To. But now you say Junin. Right? Huh? You could say Junin. Junin, but he said To. To, there's another way of saying it. Yeah. So he taught me that 48 years ago. Actually, 47 and a half. <laughs> he taught me that on an airplane ride. And because he taught me, and because he asked me to, he taught me, then he asked me to say it. And he asked me to say it again and again. And because he taught me the, the precepts of counting people in Japanese, I can still do it. And not just because he taught me 48 and a half, 47 and a half years ago, but because he told me to say it over, he told me to say it again. He told me to recite it. And also because he told me, I tell people that he told me. Not so that you can cut count people in Japanese, but so that you can know he spent his life time making an effort to teach a young priest how to count people in Japanese. He devoted his life energy to helping me learn these 10 words. And because he made that effort, and because I appreciated him, I celebrate that over and over. And because I celebrate it over and over, I can count people in Japanese. Still. Want to see? <laughs> you do? Story. Tari. Sanin. Yonin. Gonin. Shichinin. Hachinin. Kunin to. I can still do it because I've been doing it over and over for all these years. Similarly, the Buddha said, I want you to learn these 10 bodhisattva precepts and I want you to recite them. So you'll learn them. He didn't say that part. Recite them. I'm going to do it. I already know. He didn't need to, he didn't need to count Jap people in Japanese. He knew it already. He did it for me. But it's, a, it's an example of, what he, of everything he was doing. He was doing these things so I would learn, so we would learn. And because he gave it to me, I'm not just learning it for me, I'm learning it for you. I'm learning it for the next generation. So you do the same thing. You hearing these precepts, you not say, recite these precepts so you can tell them to people and they can listen and they can realize you're making the effort. So they can learn them. And this is how these precepts are transmitted. Like I read yesterday, these precepts have been protected and maintained by the Buddhas and the ancestors. Now we give them to you. We want you to protect and maintain them. 
but still, it's, I, I still was somewhat shocked, stunned, touched that he was spending his time. He wasn't teaching me like the Lotus Sutra or the Prajnaparamita Sutra, you know, the meaning of koans. He's teaching me to count people in Japanese. That he's spending his time on that. And everybody already knows about not killing, not stealing, right? But this Zen teacher spends his time teaching this stuff. These simple teachings, which kind of everybody knows, but not really knowing. So the Buddhists have to tell us what they already know and what we already know so that we really know like they know. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.